Blog Talk Radio. Okay, welcome to the People's Medicine Show. My name's Sean. I'm the host. This is a monthly blog talk radio show about herbal medicine and whatnot. I like to um, explore new trends, new ideas, um, new um, zeitgeists that are in the air infecting humanity and um, the plants around us. But um, if you've not already listened to uh, Susan Weed's blog talk radio show from May 26, go back and just listen to it before you even bother listening to my show. Uh, I just heard it two nights ago, so I was like a week behind hearing um, the news. And if anything, if anyone's ever doubted the authenticity and the realness of Susan Weed, I, I don't know how you can doubt it now. She's the, totally the real deal. And um, it always brings back, you know, like when I first met Susan uh, in 2010, I think. I met her a long time before that, but I went in, um, wanted to learn about herbs from her, and I contacted her. I was living in Florida, and I signed up for the ABC Herbal class. And then um, in the autumn of that year, I was able to visit Susan in, in, in her farm in um, Saugerties, uh, Woodstock outskirts. And um, it was just an amazing first-time experience, you know. And, um, uh, you know, I think a lot of people would be run off by Susan because she has really strict rules. And one of the first rules I learned that was extremely strict and non-negotiable is um, when you visit her property and no glass containers can be carried around unless if they're in a cloth bag in a basket, in some kind of hard container, in a car, you know, like, and that was spelled out really specifically to me. So it brings back, you know, the lessons that I'm still learning that uh, I recently, in the past six months, started working on a regenerative farm here in Hawaii. And um, the other day I did a bunch of work and I had two hoses going at once and I did not turn off one of the hoses. And it was on full blast from 5 p.m. till 8 a.m. the next morning. So the water bill and the electricity bill that that, that caused uh, will be two months from now. So I really like, wow, I'm so glad that I didn't burn Susan's goat barn down because I maybe I would have been the one that didn't blow out the candle. But I was a brand new employee and um, I've never really worked two ho- different host spigots before. And I know as a lesson, when any- anyone comes on my property and touches my hoses, that I always have to go back and look at them. And um, I have to just carry forth this, this lesson that I'm learning into the future. And then perhaps I'll be able to tell you what the financial cost of running uh, a water hose from 5 p.m. to 8 a.m. would be. Um, I'm really, you know, going to just hold my breath for two months to figure out the additional, I think it's mostly electricity because it need, needed to be pumped even though, and then the person who owns the farm went into, you know, that there's a gravity fed system, but they still use electricity to pump the water and it's, you know, it's just that Rube Goldberg that happens in society, I guess more people that want water hookups, the more electricity they have to use. But um, I'm having a good life here in uh, Hawaii. Uh, 
coming off this weird pandemic and last month I had like a whole other list of things I was like oh you know um has anyone listened to Susan and um Paul Bergner's talk and Paul Bergner was a real student of the 1918 flu pandemic and I can honestly say um you know that knowing the past history has given me a little bit more peace about this thing that's going on because it's very likely that history will will repeat itself and then in the autumn time there will be another kind of like outbreak and um i think that's just the way the rhythm of this thing goes so i'm going by my intuitiveness I'm not a scientist but i feel like um history often does closely you know pattern uh, itself especially with some type of um flu that infects pe you know crowded civilizations and um you know and it, it, what else is wild too i was reading about the medieval plague doctor masks and costumes and they those plagues you know they were they were jumping out year by year so you know it was like it's just a whole era and um they didn't really have a, a grasp of microbiology but if you look it up on Wikipedia, I think it's Plague Doctor Mask, and um, they go into a little bit of a history of it, and how these plague doctors had contracts with the local governments to go in and take care of things and poke the plague plague victims with sticks and whatnot. So, you know, I guess when I'm discussing history, you know, just go back and look at 400 years from now, never mind 1918. Go go look at 400 years. Um, I think, yeah, closely about 400 years ago, they were, or was it in the 1400s? So, okay, 600 years ago. But um, that was quite a difference. And I'm sure plagues of the future, they'll say, what barbarians, they were strapping people up to ventilators and making ventilators a political issue. And then a month later saying, oh, we're sorry, we used too many ventilators. And People could have just been um, treated with a, a technique called prone breathing, which um, most home medics are aware of. When you know, if you don't have a, a ventilator machine, you could try prone breathing. So, those were some life-saving techniques, and I'm really um, learning to really have compassion for people who are willing to go to war in these hospitals where people were coming into the hospital, sort of like a war zone where, and people were piling up and up and. I'm sure they were in fear for their own life. They didn't know what was going on. There was a lot of panic. So, um, but yeah, so last month I was really raging about uh, people being overtreated for something and it causing more harm. And that's exactly what seems to have happened also in 1918. They, aspirin was a new drug and they really were giving people probably a lot more aspirin than they could possibly need or use. and. Uh, nowadays, I don't think they would give anybody that amount of aspirin. And then what I'm hearing about people just like mega dosing with vitamin C, I think, I think in the future we're gonna know that that probably is the same type of thing, you know, just like pounding your body with some isolated chemical. <laughs> it's not really gonna um, contribute to a long-term health. It, it probably in the short term it will give you like a stimulation effect. And maybe, you know, people, you know, cause and effect, people swear by it. Oh, okay, I just...
stimulate my body with vitamin C every time <laughs> this happens. But I really want to chase after the holistic way, you know, of having this well-rounded diet with a lot of medicinal mushrooms and citrus fruits. And um, eating the white part of the inside of the citrus fruit, I was always told, do that, do that. And I don't know where it comes from. I think my grandmother... Um, told us that, you know, always eat the white part of the citrus, that that is part of the magic of citrus fruits. You know, you want to, I, I don't know about eating the seeds, but we used to chew the seeds and they're, they're horrible. I think they make um, some horrible heroic medicine from the grapefruit seeds uh, to burn out the infections within us. But but I think uh, grapefruit seed is sort of um, a standard item that's in uh, grapefruit seed extract. is a standard item that's in uh, like herbalist's first aid kits for certain things. So I've pretty much been studying herbalism for about 10 years, and I'm very much an amateur. But I picked up Juliet's book the other day. Someone wanted to know about her lung uh, herbs, the herbs that she was using for lungs. And she, she's... A, what a really cool book. It's called Common Herbs for Natural Health. And it's 200 with the index, which is extensive. It's maybe 222 pages, 23 pages, 223 pages. And it's pretty much an encyclopedia. And it is a lot of fun that the best herbalists are female herbalists because there's not much of a male mind that you need for herbalism. There's a lot of feeling and touching and experiencing to become a good uh, herbalist and to be able to transmit, um, you know, the plants and the plant spirits to others. So this past month, somebody who grows mamaki in their backyard and just allies with it and they like lovingly hand dried some and they gave me a bag of it. And I've been looking at mamaki for three or four years now since I've moved to Hawaii. It's like an item of commerce. It's, it's valuable. And um, it never really rung, rung my bell. I was like, well, I prefer stinging nettle and infusion. And that, that stinging nettle infusion still is my go-to. I drink it once or twice a week. But, um, but yeah, so I took this home and I prepared it just like as a decoction. And uh, I... I think I simmered it for 15 minutes and then just let it cool off in the pot for a few hours, covered. And the way it's um, traditionally or commonly used is they'll uh, rebrew it. So you strain out what's left and then pour more water on that and boil that. Maybe boil that for a little longer than 15 minutes. And I, and I say boil, but I think it's more like a, you know, bring it to a rolling boil and then drop it to a simmer. So that's my version. I don't know. I'm always shy with doing these like rolling ball boil decoctions. I think perhaps it just speeds up um, evaporation. It really doesn't, you know, improve things. So that has been what I've been just really vibing about with herbs. And it's kind of fun that I'm recording this right now. So now I can look at my notes and pause. And oh yeah, so. This year, 2020, is like my year of herbal vinegar. So I've always known about herbal vinegars, but I think I, since I started using reagent bottles, which have a curved top and hold all the dried herb in the bottle, I think um, making the herbal vinegars in those type of bottles 
where you can also easily remove the solid herb. Um, so I think it's called the reagent bottle. I think they're about $8, and they're pricey. They have a glass stopper. Um, but ever since I've been using the reagent bottles, I always am rolling through new herbal vinegars. So I just thought of a brand new one. I have a bunch of dried skull cap that I've just never used. So I'm, gonna, I'm making a vinegar out of dried skull cap. And I know some people swear by using fresh skull cap. And I was thinking, I was like, there's not too many herbs that really benefit from having the fresh version. Like, we all know about St. John's wort, which is going to be starting to bloom this month. And mother wort, which is probably already going. And, um, yeah, those two herbs are way more effective if you're going to, you know, just go out and trim them fresh. So this is like my basic knowledge of herbs, you know, I know, okay, those are two herbs that you want to consider fresh, but now I have this whole plethora of just dried herbs waiting for me to use, and um, so I've done a sage vinegar, this is the brand new one I've done, I did two full ounces of dried sage in uh, 32 ounces of apple cider vinegar, and uh, I, I did not use the strained vinegar, I used sort of the... the the raw vinegar, but I've been going through these vinegars so quickly. I've been using them a lot, just as a basic condiment. And so, I think I am on the third one, but I've been doing catnip, lemon balm, and I guess if you do have fresh um, mints going, yeah, go ahead and use them. But all winter long, I've been just playing with uh, these dried mints that I just have laying around. So if you have dried mints, laying around, please make some vinegars and do them as a simple. Do like just catnip, just lemon balm, and you'll be really pleasantly surprised and you'll learn to really recognize the flavors. And um, the flavor is mostly minerals, you know, so, you know, the, the idea basically around use, making an herb vinegar is um, extracting the mineral components because um, these plants pull the minerals in the most perfect concentrations where I really think um, you know you are beating mineral supplements by far because you're getting a really wide spectrum of different little tiny trace minerals that really can't be uh, measured um, but they exist in the plants tissues and when you extract them out with either um, hot water in the case of infusions or vinegars. Um, so the one thing I do want to make a distinction about though is when you're doing a hot water infusion where you're going to drink it like a cup or a quart at a time, <laughs> um, you, you want to stay away from anything that really has an, an aroma. You know, that even something like linden blossoms, you, maybe you'd want to use a half of an ounce. Per, per quart of boiling water, you know, you wouldn't even want to use a full ounce of something even with the light scent like linden, but all the, you know, the herbs that I use uh, for vinegar seem to be the stinky, minty herbs, you know, <laughs> so I use them in small enough quantities that I don't think I'm going to be overdosing or getting any, like, you know, um, far out um, medicinal effects from the from the mints I'm drinking, you know, I'm just using them sort of as a spice, as a culinary delight, and I think, um, 
you know, that's sort of how I'm um, changing my whole idea of what it means to be an herbalist. I'm just like, okay, I'm a person who really likes to cook and be in the kitchen. And I also work with the plants outside in the garden. And there's both a very much uh, intertwining of both these loves. So, uh, so that is my update. And I'm going to probably get back more into Juliet. Uh, maybe I'll read her section on sage, or um, there was another, um, yeah, I think I would like to read her section of, of her herbalist book on sage, so I'll be back later, I'm going to stop this recording, and perhaps I'm going to have a pretty cool show with really good audio quality this month. Yeah, so before I begin uh, reading that little excerpt from Juliet's book about sage, I wanted to give a little shout-out to uh, a website uh, called BotanicWise.com, and I just signed up for a free COVID-19, uh, an herbalist perspective class, and that is a free class that's being offered, and it looks like it's uh, held sort of on that teachable platform. So um, I want to encourage people to check out BotanicWise.com. I just received news that uh, there's going to be an online symposium from June 12th through June 14th. So it's going to be like a full symposium where you're going to get all the top um, herbalist teachers like Mario, um, Rosemary Gladstar, David Winston, Guido Masse, Tammy Sweet. So if you don't know these teachers and you've never been to an herbal symposium before, this is a, an opportunity. Now it is pricey. I think the bottom tier right now is $174. But if you've not uh, signed up for any um, online classes this year, perhaps you could fit that into your budget. I am actually signed up for a six-month online uh, herbalist class right now, and I, I think I'm pretty much um, invested right now so I can't really swing but I think maybe if I had other herbalists in my area who I wanted to network with um, that would be really cool and then I was looking at the presentations and I think they're all going to be just done like live you know with not pre-recorded so it's going to be just a in real time type of deal and it does sound really alluring to um, attend that botanic-wise um, because I've been to in-person herbal symposiums and they they really generate a lot of um, good energy to um, go to those yearly herbalist gatherings and um, hang out with other herbalists and I'm you know what I mean like uh, I think we really should spread the the news and maybe this year maybe. I don't know. I still have not decided. I cannot say yes to it yet because it's a, it's a pretty big chunk of change, $174. So I really have to um, wait and see. And um, they do have scholarships. So if, I guess if you um, want to do some service, and I know they're going to have like virtual uh, watch parties, and they'll probably have a lot of need for different moderators. So perhaps uh, you'll be able to score a work exchange. I, it said that they were accepting scholarship uh, applications until May 30th, though. But that is something new in the herbalist world that I wanted to talk about and put it out there. It would be one of those type of things, if I wasn't recording right now, I would um, 
do the show live and forget. Like, why didn't I mention that symposium? It's going to be for three days, and I might go. So um, it excites me when uh, Herbalists get together and we all just compare notes. And we're, you know, I'm really excited about really honing in on just being intuitive. And I've I've been hit with this um, possibility that I have to leave this wonderful apartment that I'm renting right now. And it includes electricity and internet. So I am like, wow. You know, so they, they said, yeah, try to go within 45 days. So it took me about 45 days to find this apartment. So... I think if I want an extension of this 45 days, I, I have to get started on day one looking and be able to justify if I can't leave within 45 days. So that's where I'm at right now. Like, yo, get my index cards, uh, seeking a one-bedroom studio apartment on, on Hawaii's Big Island. And if you know anybody who has a house, that would be a great um, way to connect with me. Uh, my name is Sean. S-E-A-N, Mernin, M-U-R-N-I-N. You can message me on Facebook. That's probably the easiest way. This, uh, this blog talk show has its own email address. Uh, it's peoplesmedicineshow at gmail.com. So I guess I'll begin reading this segment of Juliet's book, but I love this uh, one talk I once heard with... Uh, Rosemary Gladstar and Susan Ween, they were just chatting about the old days. Like, they both, like, have been around since, like, the early 70s as, as herbalists and teaching other people about herbs and, um, and doing it, you know, pumping out books and just spreading it. Where by now, there are so many female herbalist books everywhere. So it is kind of fun to hear that chat with Rosemary and Susan. They're like, yeah, there were no books. Juliet's books were the only books we had. (laughs) And Juliet's books are not the end-all, be-all, but it's a real base foundation of um, good stuff to know. And if you're not familiar with who Juliet de Barakli-Levy is, she's an educated um, British woman, and I think she she was a, of Jewish descent, and she lived in uh, Britain, and I believe she was of, of an upper class, and she was well-educated, and I believe she graduated uh, college as a veterinarian, and she had this um, epiphany where she just, like, did not pursue a career as a veterinarian, but instead ran away with the gypsies, and she wanted to learn all about how the, the gypsies took care of their animals, which she always admired, and when you read her books, they're more like travel logs, and it's just brilliant to think of what a wonderful person that we have, and she passed away, I think, in about 1991, but before she passed, she was a big deal with American herbalists, and um, everyone loved her, and she was just so quirky and weird, and I wish I could have met her, and I would have loved to sit down with her and talk about killing rats. And I I was told that she really enjoyed that topic. And you'll see it often in her books when she talks about the vermin and the rats and um, how it pretty much sets her off. So really a quirky, eccentric, funny person. So I'm going to read this section in her book called Common Herbs for Natural Health, and it's on sage. Salvia officinalis, and back when this was written, the plant 
family was called Labiatiae, and it's been renamed to Lamiaceae. So I'm giving you the 2020 fam uh, plant family name, Lamiaceae. Uh, it's a mint. So, um, okay, so sage. Found on sunny hillsides and rocky grounds and cultivated in gardens. Leaves are oval, rather woodly, strongly aromatic. Flowers in whorls and vary from silver to deep blue in color. Highly aromatic. This is another of the major herbs of the herbalist and has been in the service of mankind since ancient times. Its name is from the Latin salverer. Quote, to be well, unquote, and quote, to save, unquote. A tea of sage tops is one of the most refreshing and beneficial available to mankind. The scent from sage tea is a feature of Greek villages as it is brewed in the cafes. The wild sage of Mexico and its neighboring region, Salvia Azura Grandiflora, with its blue, highly scented blossoms, is powerfully medicinal, as is Salvia Colorata red sage, which is considered a cure-all, especially for ailments of the throat and lungs, including tuberculosis. Uh, use internal. The plant is believed to exert a beneficial influence over the human spirit and to quell unnatural or vicious sexual desires. <laughs> It will also restore normal virility when the, when the failure is not due to venereal disease. Sage is a proven help in fevers and is also a vermifuge and insecticide, a valued heart tonic and fever cure for colds, sore throats, coughs as tea and gargle, sore and ulcerated mouths all fevers, digestive ailments, especially flatulence and lack of appetite, constipation, obesity. To support the milk yield and to give tonic properties to the milk for all nervous ailments, including paralysis and mild mental derangement, to improve the memory, also used to flavor cheese. Okay, so use external for all forms of wounds, sores, ulcers, to allay excessive bleeding, an effective hair tonic to stimulate growth, tone up the color, act as a setting lotion, and remove dandruff, to deter moths, cockroaches, and rodents from clothes closets, also as an inhalation and in sweat baths, a teeth clean cleanser. Okay, dose. Okay, so. Juliet calls her nourishing herbal infusions a standard brew, and that's just basically a handful of herbs. This is Susan, um, um, this is Sean um, stopping reading. So when Juliet when says standard brew, she doesn't use a scale like Susan Weed does and measures one ounce. She uses one handful, and that was Juliet's measurement of herb. And I'm pretty sure she probably did have an intuitive sense to know what her standard brew is for each herb. And basically the same deal, you know, about a quart of water for a handful of herb. And um, so I'll 
one day when I find her description of a standard brew, I'll read it. But I did want to um, stop reading because she's going to discuss a standard brew of sage. Okay, a dose of standard brew. A cupful morning and night sweetened with honey. As sage is a potent herb, a teaspoon of the herb to one cup of water is sufficient. Sage can also be infused in the sunlight without requiring fire heat to yield pleasantly flavored and tonic water. So she recommends using uh, sage in a sun tea. Okay, so externally, this, use the standard brew as a lotion, the pulped herb for wounds, for clothes closets, tie the sage in bunches and place within. Sage is excellent as an inhalation for congestion of the nose and head and may be placed in water for steam baths, having been much used in this way by the ancient Mexicans. So that was a reading on the common herb sage, which is, I just made a fantastic sage vinegar, and it's only a few days old, and the vinegar has already completely changed the, the whole structure of the, of the dried sage that was in the vinegar. I'm going to go dip my finger in it again and, and, and have another taste, but I really encourage people to um, explore sage. It's a wonderful vinegar herb, and the one that I just made was I used two ounces of dried sage to uh, 32 ounces, about one liter of apple cider vinegar. And if you're using, uh, I wanted to mention this also, if you're doing vinegars and you're using fresh herbs, you really will have a much better effect if you um, use a distilled vinegar that's well strained. And also, um, you can um, stop the um, mothering effect of a vinegar by um, bringing it up to, um, you know, uh, a high temperature to um, before uh, putting in fresh plants. So if you do have some fresh plants that you want that still have some water content in them, uh, you're going to have a better um, result and you're going to have a vinegar that stays really well and doesn't get funky and cheesy and moldy. And um, the other part of vinegars is they, they do need to be uh, watched to the point where um, if the plant matter starts floating above the vinegar, they need to be submerged under the vinegar. So you have to, um, to look at them every few days and maybe give them a swirl and to make sure the vinegars are being taken care of. But I've enjoyed this little segment of uh, reading Juliet's um, uh, essay about sage. And she really basically, it's such simple information that she puts out, but I seem to get so much from it. And it's kind of fun, too, that she even, like, puts in that gypsy stuff that sage is a sex herb. It's good if you're, like, oversexed. It's good if you're undersexed. Uh, it's a virility herb, but not in the case of venereal disease. If your venereal disease um, is, you know, if your virility problem is caused by a venereal disease, uh, I'm kind of happy that she mentioned, yeah, sage isn't going to be the the herb that's going to help you in that area. So I turned off the white noise that I had in the background. I didn't, re I didn't realize I even had a fan on. So I got the first two parts of this show uploaded, and I'm about to begin my third recorded segment. And I wanted to 
let everyone know um, my research into making CBD medicines. And um, so growing these plants is absolutely amazing. And I'm still really at the container gardening stage. And uh, I hope that this year will be the year where I actually will put uh, C high CBD hemp plants right into the ground and experience it. I've um, planted cannabis on and off since the 1980s. And if I've ever been able to put a plant in, it, in the ground, it's one. And uh, right now I have a medical permit and I think I'm allowed to uh, put up to like nine full plants in, into the ground. And I have my little labels with my license number and expiration date. <laughs> and so I'm ready to um, really explore the growing of cannabis in new ways this year. But as far as making um, CBD medicines, I um, am apprenticing under a local herbalist here on the Big Island, and she works with the Hawaiian Kingdom. She's a very much a community herbalist. She's um, by word of mouth, and she delivers her, her medicines to people. And and um, it's really cool to, to understand that as we, you make a new batch of CBD medicine every month with different plants, you're getting a whole different spectrum of ca cannabinoids. So each month, your different types of receptors are being hit if you're using these CBD um, tinctures, you know, daily or hourly or... I guess each person finds their own rhythm of using the CBD tinctures. And for me, I'm a very simple person as far as its effect on me. It's just, it's a calming agent that less than five drops of CBD oil will make me feel really calm. And um, it's very quick, just very much similar to using a motherwort tincture, but in a lot less quantity. It's a really incredible because I would use easily a half a, half a dropper of motherwort, you know, as a starting dose. And, um, you know, but maybe even then with motherwort, I could lower it down to a quarter of a dropper. But I've seen other people use a lot of motherwort, you know, and um, to really quell, uh, what would you call it, excitement. Uh, I, I try not to use the word anxiety or anxiousness because it's not really that. It's probably just um, needing to calm down and rest. It's more of... Um, just a, a message of my body saying, okay, it's time to calm down and get centered and um, not be so uh, amped up. But these herbs um, that I've used to calm down, like valerian all throughout the years and hops, and I think I've just gone through different phases where, you know, I've used different herbs when I'm feeling extra jumpy. And I think I, there was a childhood accident. I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Um, I was raised a toddler in the early 70s or late 60s and I think it was probably the late 60s and um, there were a bunch of uh, diet pills laying all over the house and my family were using them and it was not considered drug addiction it, it, you know you went to the diet doctor and you had diet pills laying all over the house so I specifically remember my, my sisters and brothers going in and grabbing one or two each or and their friends and they were all just going into the same bottle. I ended up seeing what they were doing and I I think I was 3 years old and I took like a lot of amphetamines to the point where I hallucinated. And I think I've always been a shaky quivering type of person and I think oh it's that time when I was 3 years old and ate all those amphetamine pills.
So it's funny too because when I started like experimenting with recreational drug abuse, drug abuse, <laughs> recreational drug abuse in my um, teen years, I was particularly fond of uppers, and um, thankfully it was not. It didn't go into injecting speed or going the the sad place where a lot of these ice people are now. And um, I'm hoping that there's people that are able to um, uh, recover from ice addiction because I, I, it just occurred to me just recently, I've always thought that I'm a savvy person, but when it comes to people who are addicted to meth or ice, um, that their nervous systems really need multiple years to really heal up. And um, a lot of people are co-addicted with um, Xanax and benzodiazepine. And that, again, you know, it can take the nervous system years to calm down and really just, you know, find new pathways and new circuits and rebuild itself. But I want to give everyone encouragement if you're struggling with a lot of, like, anxiety, that if you choose um, plant-based medicines, uh, they're, they're not going to work like a drug, but it, it's more of like a path of using these things intuitively, seasonally, and just not like, I've never used an herbal medicine like a drug where I have Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday in a box and I, oh, did you take Tuesday? No, it's not even close to that. It's like, oh, I, um, I'm feeling like I want some polyphenol, so I'm going to have some dark cherries or some hawthorne berry tincture. And, um, yeah, to use foods in certain ways, it seems like um, foods have been really, really medicinal me lately, like certain foods, especially the dark berries, you want cherries and plums, and um, yeah, I, I, it's funny too that they rename prunes, they're called dried plums now, <laughs> and I was like, oh wow, they, they rebranded prunes, but the prunes of my childhood were more of like a fermented, accurate, funky, and um, the dried prunes of today, are they do seem different. But I'm sure, you know, the effect is pretty much the same. You know, if you eat more than two or three prunes, get ready to, to start running to the bathroom. But anyway, these are very medicinal plants. And um, I'm really fascinated lately with how our gut and our taste receptors have everything to do with whether plants and plant medicines and, you know, medicinal foods, whether they have much of an effect on people. And I, I was really amazed to find out that the pathway of turmeric, the way it helps people without having to um, use black pepper, is it has a healing effect on the gut lining. And then that causes a cascade of effects. So turmeric works on so many different levels. Whether it's showing up in your blood or not, uh, eating turmeric. I, I prefer to eat it with some powdered ginger. So I'll do like two parts turmeric to maybe one part powdered ginger. And I use it just as a real heavy culinary herb. And I've gotten so used to using it and uh, using some yogurt in, in, in with it in the recipes also brings out a lot of the type of healing energy that turmeric has. You know, I do believe that you do need a fat. You know, you want to cook turmeric with a with a fat, even if it was bacon fat, I think it would be better than no fat, you know. But um, I've um, 
been wondering about bacon because it's so available and so plentiful. It's like I'm wondering, you know, how much is enough bacon to eat? You know, <laughs> how much is too much bacon? I, I, bacon's one of them foods that I think I can overeat and it won't make me feel nauseous. You know, like my body does not have a butt, like a turnoff button for bacon. So I think one of my main strategies for um, being by myself and cooking is I, I just, as soon as I'm done cooking, I wrap it up and freeze what, what I don't want to eat, you know, and um, it's really nice to be able to go into my freezer and find treats that I didn't want to eat. So <laughs> I'm wishing everyone out there who's struggling with portion control and uh, perhaps wanting to lose weight, you know, that it often does have to do with portions and looking at food differently. And um, all food is yummy and there's always going to be room for like really nasty desserts. But um, it doesn't have to be a daily thing for me. Um, I, I've met people that have that culture, man, that after dinner you get a big giant dessert every single night. And it's like, maybe I would be in the mood to, to have a big giant dessert after dinner, but not every night. So I think I am tuning into, like, yeah, perhaps that's the way to be healthy is to really listen to your body. When I was young, I could really eat a lot of junk food because I probably needed a lot of sugar to, to, to keep that insanity, I would call it insanity sometimes when I look at my life as a younger person. So um, so I talked about CBD and wanting to um, maybe find a local herbalist who is using different types of CBD plants each, you know, and putting out, you know, a full spectrum product that has different levels. So maybe that one will have more of a CBG level. And how can you test for these things? You really don't need to. Like the breeding of these CBD plants is getting very well. So you can buy a $7 seed, which is going to be high in CBG. And you can make seeds from that. And pretty much we're, we're trying to do the odds. And like 50% of the seeds that you make at home are going to be good. But um, if it's only 50% of the seeds, you're not good enough to sell cannabis seeds to other people. You can give them away, but you can't sell seeds if you're, if you're not a skilled seed maker because they are able to back cross and do the proper work to um, get a consist more consistent than, say, 50% on good offspring. But the way we're, we're working it is we have some stock. They were like 7 bucks a seed, and we're going to make more seeds and each of our plants are going to have different types of um, chemotypes. I, I love that word, chemotype. So that is the plan. And especially being in a place like the south part of the Big Island, which is, I think, the most southernest part of the United States of America. And um, there's a place on Key West that's like the, the most southernest part. But I think the Big Island, when you're looking at equatorial, you know, closeness we're, we're there so um we're going to be able to use very you know deep um types of plants that have origins in thailand and africa and uh even like brazil and colombia
So it is kind of fun because a lot of these CBD plants that are being sold uh, to people in equatorial regions, we're having a little bit of a challenge because we need taller type of plants. Um, yeah, they're, they're, I'm calling them taller, but I guess they would be called a more of a thin-leaved type of sativa, and it has a little bit of a different structure than um, the, the plants that come from India and Pakistan and, and, you know, a lot of the skunky, cushy type plants that people in California uh, like to, um, <laughs> everyone likes it, not just the people in California. So I did want to just hit on that, that I'm learning about CBD tinctures and how perhaps, you know, if you have different brands of CBD tinctures to try to alternate between the brands and um, you want to hit as many of those receptors as possible and not get too locked into just some kind of isolated experience where you're treating CBD like a drug and it doesn't have to be like a drug. It could be more like a food where, oh, wow, break out that, that batch, that, you know, or break out that batch, you know, and just have several batches of CBD oil and um, be rotating through them all. So that, I think, is a very much a big idea when it comes to using CBD. And I'm going to probably have more to add on to it. But it's by observation. It's by talking to lots and lots of people who are using it. And it just seems like, yeah, that's where we're, we're on the right track. Okay, so doing these pre-recorded um, raps is kind of forcing me to stick to the topics that I picked. And I picked on the ADOS topic, A-D-O-S, and it stands for American Descendants of Slavery. And it's a growing movement which has uh, 71,000 subscribers on YouTube. And the channel I'm talking about is called Tone Talks, T-O-N-E Talks. Uh, one word, and I discovered Tone Talks and ADOS101.com uh, from another podcast that I've been listening to for the past few months, and this all seemed to have happened about a month ago that I discovered what uh, black reparation means, and um, ADOS is actually... Um, sort of backing off being called black because they want to be called American descendants of slavery. And the numbers that have been presented to me really have put me on their side. And lately I'm very much like, let's look at the numbers. And 40 acres and a mule is a famous thing in history that was promised, but it was never really truly ratified. And it was quickly shut down, but most people agreed that that was a very much um, a reasonable um, reparation to make, um, a gesture. And I looked at, you know, other things, you know, how the American government is not against making reparations. They've made reparations to the Hawaiian people, partial. They've made partial reparations reparations to uh, American Indian, Native American. They've made uh, financial, uh, recent financial reparations to uh, Japanese Americans. So what I've learned from listening to uh, some of the information from Tone Talks and the MoFax po podcast, which originally uh, referred me to this, 
Uh, MoFax is co-hosted by Adam Curry, and it's uh, just a really wonderful man named Mo, who I think lives down in Virginia, and he comes from a really cool family that really taught him well, and he has an appreciation for history. He loves going back into history and just like digging things out and serving them up fresh and hot, you know, on his podcast. So if anyone's interested in learning more about black history, black equality, um, um, American descendant of slaves, you know, it's so funny because we really have been programmed to say black. And uh, African-American, like when you go back, it was pretty much ratified by Jesse Jackson in the 1980s. Like Jesse Jackson really is the first person that really uh, popularized that uh, word alternative. But African-American now, with our current situation, really does not describe the base inequality that exists and how it can be made right. And there are actual numbers for 40 acres and a mule that can be distributed to the descendants of the people who were originally supposed to get it, and but were stopped. And one of my favorite books that I've ever read, um, nonfiction, is called Lies My Teacher Told Me. And it basically lays out a lot of how American history is very much geared toward white supremacy. And the teaching of American history is geared toward white supremacy. And to, and I really don't understand it because I was really raised in a very multicultural, um, you know, from childhood. The other thing that I saw this week that really just, I totally am so happy that it's being spread around is, it's um it's an old frontline PBS documentary, and it, it takes place in a classroom the day after Martha Luther King was shot, and um it's a wonderful backstory. So look up um blue eyes, blue eyes brown eyes classroom, and um it, you'll see the PBS uh, website that describes this wonderful video. So I sat and watched this for 15 minutes and. I was raised in a really progressive school system where we had uh, outside enrichment programs and we learned so many different things back then. And this this experiment where they did uh, multi-day training about what racial inequality is and how it feels was transmitted to these children. It's a very exciting, exciting thing to have seen this week of all weeks and I'm hoping that millions and millions of people have seen this. Because um, it was spread around through an Instagram account. And the version that I see looks like it, it, it's a common version that's that's shown in Japan. Because it has Japanese subtitles on it. So it, it was really interesting that our PBS documentaries, which are an absolute classic, doesn't seem to have um, a wide uh, audience. So I'm hoping... Just like I was talking about Planet of the Humans last month, to um, really look this up, I found it a really important thing. Black, brown eye, blue eye documentary, and perhaps on my last um, recording, I'll go ahead and go ahead and look that name up and give you the exact name of this documentary. But I think it can be purchased from PBS, and it's not really currently available. But it was a waller, you know, just. I needed to see it because I've really formed new ideas about supporting ADOS reparations 
And I think karmically, reparations, um, they say we're spiritually sick. And making those type of gestures does um, heal um, a sickness. Isn't it so funny, though, that I was um, interrupted? I'm being interrupted by a talking um, device in the same room. I was interrupted last um, last month when I was doing the the quick thirty minute version of this podcast. <laughs> so I was interrupted talking about ADOS, and um, it, it's a really cool thing. And the numbers that I heard were like, there's three hundred and fifteen thousand um, American families who could be identified as ADOS who are worth over a million dollars. And there's an estimated, at a low estimate, 14 million white families that have comparable wealth. So those numbers really don't match up with um, American descendant of blacks and the white population. And I think a gesture of making a financial reparation that would be equal to, or, you know, um, to the 40 acres and a mule really is an interesting equation to make. Like, if there could be a reparation that could be made, couldn't it be made in that same monetary amount? And um, it, it's kind of cool that um, Joe Biden's out, and he really identifies himself as an, you know, really as a champion for American black uh, communities and cultures, and. Um, it, it's a really tricky situation right now because Minneapolis uh, rioted this past week and 50% of the black population there is not American descendant of slavery. They're new immigrants who are used to rioting and are good at rioting. <laughs> and the traditional people who are protesting black injustice is um, it's kind of getting lost in the shuffle. And I'm kind of um, going back to looking at the Occupy um, protests of 2011 and how that also got lost in a shuffle. It was never really united after, after just one simple point. You know, one Occupy had this like um, everybody's cause was allowed to be thrown into that and they were at a financial district and they should have chosen the financial matter that was at hand which was the Citizens United decision, in my opinion, because that gave corporations um, an unequal power uh, uh, access to politics, whereby um, unrestricting their restricted free speech, you know. And I guess political donations is uh, found by the United States Supreme Court as freedom of speech. And, um, and, it would take legislation, and it may take uh, a constitutional Congress to limit free speech if it is defined as uh, a political contribution. Um, so there were laws that were made by McCain-Feingold that were overturned by the Citizens United decision. And so I was really hoping that that was the, the movement that came from that in 2011. I thought that the Occupy unit was, it's all about that. It's all about that Citizens United decision. But 
In the meantime, um, corporations have just upped their lobbying budgets, and um, our political system has become even more, in, you know, just so full of, you know, cor you know, money and um, influenced by money, which uh, puts regular people's interests in the interests of society second. So that's basically my political rant for this show, but those those are my beliefs, and I encourage you to look up ADOS 101 and uh, the Tone Talks YouTube channel. I've been listening a little bit more of that, but um, I learned it from Mo Fax, and I love him, and I continue to enjoy that podcast. And in my next um, clip, I'm going to discuss a really cool movie that I've seen recently. Okay, I want to talk about a movie I've seen recently, but I want to give you some little bit of a story before I talk about why this movie may have uh, affected me so deeply. So I have um, a pen pal relationship with someone who we've known each other for 30 years, at least, a minimum. You know, I think about 33 years. I, we met each other when we were about 18 and 19. So... Um, this person totally dropped me like a hot potato. And I guess our conversation kind of like stopped it. They got involved with TM. And they had they went and did the TM class. And um, so I guess they're, they're on like some kind of spiritual sabbatical. But they just basically just ghosted me and stopped uh, all contact with me. And um, yeah, so my mind has been wandering. Like, what the hell did TM you know, put them on the right track to stay away from me? I don't know. But um, I was looking at um, TM mantras, and I was like, I wonder what they are, and should should I go buy one? Should I go buy a mantra? And I guess uh, they do sell training, and um, they've done this training in a very traditional, regimented way. And, um, yeah, I guess it would be scientific, because if they do the same thing over and over and over again, and they get the... A consistent result. Um, TM is considered um, like sort of a scientific system that people use to get centered and to, um, you know, embark upon a, a path of um, meditating two, three times a day. And uh, there's a lot of health benefits that result. So I'm not in any position to say TM's wrong, but at the same time, I was really curious about what are the mantras and, you know, why do you need special training to get one and um, I was the only thing I've known uh, found out so far I'm very early in my research but it was just something that stuck to my head that they they have two classifications of mantras that they assign people to use and I guess you're assigned one mantra and um, you're told just to use that one mantra and um, and um, yeah, I was I was asking them before they stopped talking to me or writing to me. I, I was asking them, um, do they let you use a timer, or you know? And I think they do. They let you use a timer at first, and then finally, I guess it becomes autopilot, where you just know what 20 minutes feels like. And um, so I'm I'm open, you know, to like doing an organized meditation class. So I was thinking thinking about stuff like this. But anyway, I'll save. A lot of my story but anyway I found out there's two classifications of uh, mantras and one is for the renunciate and then one is for the householder 
And I was like, wow, you know, so like there is one that's more like geared toward, you know, the renouncing of things. And then there's other ones where people want to keep their shit together and run shit. Right. I think that's what householder is. Right. You know, you know, I need to keep my shit together so things can, you know, not fall apart. And then the the person who renounces, I, I don't know, I just like wonder, how do you make the differentiation between you're good for a renunciate, you're good for a a householder mantra. That was just something that entered into my consciousness this month. And one of my friends, Devorah, on Facebook, used to be a TM teacher until she found her guru. So I should um, totally interview Devorah since she's sort of a renegade ex-TM. So I have access to the info probably that I'm looking for, but... Um, I love long friendships and, um, yeah, and it's not the first per it's not the first time this person's dropped me like a hot potato, believe me, but, um, you know, it's kind of fun though to, to try to figure people out and say, where are they coming from, you know, and, um, cause I know it's not about me, <laughs> it's always, and that's one of my great lessons that I've learned in 2020, where I began 2019 discovering that I was betrayed, and I was so enraged, and I was more like blaming myself, where I was like, no, the person who betrayed you is the one who has the problem, not you. And um, yeah, everything just became right when I got through that stupid truth, you know, of like victim blaming. Yeah, I'm a victim, and I blame myself, and... Wow, that causes so much unhappiness on so many different levels. But anyway, about long friendships. There's a movie, a documentary I've seen recently that just absolutely floored me. And it's called Shepherd and Dark. Oh, and I jumped off the page where that shows, um, yeah, here it is. It's called Shepherd and Dark, 2012 drama... And I have all these trial memberships to streaming services that I cannot honestly for the life of me remember if it was Amazon Prime or Netflix or this trial or that trial. But really cool friendship. These two really talented, beautiful writers um, just allow themselves to be interviewed and followed around and, you know, poke, poke that. And... um the questions, they're both in their late 60s, and a man in, I'm in my early 50s, and I'm trying to form a butterfly collection of men in maybe their late 60s or late 70s, who I want to be like someday, so I found this movie to be just wonderful, these these two talented, like, oh man, just fountains of talent, both of them, and they know each other, and they muse off each other, and they have a pen pal relationship, and I cannot give away the ending in the movie, but the ending is what kind of like got me thinking about my own stuff, about being, you know, rejected and feeling. And then the other part of the movie that really struck me was, I guess Sam Shepard would be the renunciate (laughs) and Johnny Dark would be the householder. But at the same time, you think, oh, no, Johnny Dark is a is a loser. He's not, but it's a really interesting dichotomy because in a lot of ways, Johnny Dark is the renunciate where Sam Shepard's a famous playwright who people worship. And Johnny Dark is just an obscure, talented man, you know? 
And um, really, what a fun, fun movie. It really affected me deeply. But it also gave me a warning when Sam was talking about being rootless and just not allowing himself to be attached to anybody or anything. And I, I was thinking about getting a pet this past month. And it, it kind of broke my heart that I was so easily able to say, no, no, <laughs> where um, perhaps um, I need to change. And I've been really searching out. And it's funny because one of the topics I was discussing with my pen pal over the past year is I want to, like, find a, a sex and intimacy, like, counselor or coach to, like, just walk me through it and help me to be that much more outgoing with myself and to be more loving and be more willing to love others where I think I've shut myself down and just like taking the easy way out where this comfort zone that I feel right now as a man in my early 50s I'm going to be a lot weirder and I'm going to be a lot uglier in my 60s so I better learn how to like you know fuck ugly people now <laughs> while I still have well, I still have um, a bit of my youth and a bit of my unweirdness, and I think I am at the point where, yeah, I'm willing not to be weird. I want to, like, bend and and be plied by other people. You know what I mean? It's in important ways, that's how we do improve. And, um, yeah, it is kind of cool, though, to be in my 50s and to be single, never married, no kids, no pets, thinking about, oh, wow, Maybe I can make some some progress in, in areas of my life that require me to uh, really be vulnerable and to achieve, you know, greater intimacy with people. And I know what I want, and I think I just need that person to hold my hand and maybe, like, you know, bring me through maybe a six-month, like, period and graduate me. So I'm, I'm seeking that help, and um, the person got back to me, and they're going to talk to me tomorrow. So my um my life's looking cool, you know, that um taking action and um oftentimes depression happens and you just have to sit in the depression and just feel it. But then um it often does take action. You gotta stand up and fucking move and make and make some moves. Just like I was talking about um having to look for a new rental. You know, I got to get out there and put my cards up on the board. And and it is interesting to feel um, not willing to be, you know, with, with other people. And I think this pandemic and quarantine, that reinforced a lot of negative behavior that people were already struggling with. And um, I wish everyone balls to just go out there and be outgoing and um, be more friendly than you've ever been. And... Um, I guess if people are still wearing masks, really just try to like really focus in on their eyes and um, because I am already face disabled myself. Now with the mask, it's like, wow, I'm really, you know, I I hope I can um, really up my face skills with people and, um, you know, because that's how we connect by looking at each other and being close to one another, not this Zoom conference crap. And I was talking about, like, the Zoom conferences before, you know, how we, maybe we can have really big herbal herbal gatherings, like big ones, where thousands more people than the ones that came. So that is an exciting possibility, and I just wanted to bring that back. 
um, to what I was talking about, that face-to-face groups, I would hope that if some of these teachers are doing the herbal conference and they're doing it by Zoom, that I hope they do have a room full of students right in front of them because I think that would help the people that are viewing it remotely to maybe catch the spirit of a classroom, of an herbalist that's, you know, got a bunch of kids sitting on the ground and um, asking questions and going back and forth and, um, you know, sucking in all the, the, the new knowledge and untested knowledge that uh, we get at these symposiums. So I'm happy that I'm mentioning the herbal symposium that uh, BotanicWise.com is putting on next weekend. Because if you want to be an herbalist, you really have to get with other herbalists. And you'll see. Um, They're going to teach you stuff, and you're going to teach them stuff. And you're going to ask them certain questions, and they're going to change their minds. And they're going to ask you questions, and you're going to change your mind. So I want to encourage everyone that uh, we really, we can get educations uh, really vast educations behind a computer screen nowadays. We can attend beautiful college lectures by really talented professors, but we really need to carry that over and, and support uh, really good herbal teachers. And yeah, the best herbal teachers are the popular ones. They really are. Uh, capitalism does work, and you know, good herbal teachers are generally they got thousands of people that love them. So, um, yeah, go to a big symposium and and look at the big teachers and what they're on to. It is a lot of fun since I've been following this over the years. Everybody changes. Everyone, like, evolves together. And um, the information, there's so much, even though there's different types of herbal teachers, they're very much all on the same page, and we're all turning the same pages together. And it's a lot of fun to be an herbalist in 2020 and I was hoping to get my radio show back into my passion for being an herbalist and I think this one has done it so um, the next um, segment of the show is going to be the closing song and I picked a beautiful one and I'll go ahead and introduce it now and it's from um, Pink Floyd, The Wall, and it's a new quarantine version that Roger Waters did with his band. And they had, speaking of technology, they're able to record a new version of a song uh, all through, uh, what do you call it, fiber optic cables and internets, you know. So um, this this song is really special to me because I remember um, getting Pink Floyd, The Wall, when it came out. And in 1979, it came out. And um, and I remember my friend from Catholic school, Joseph Ganzi, he got it first. And he brought it to school. And then everyone else got it. And we bought it at Woolworths. Woolworths store. So I I remember buying Pink Floyd the Wall at Woolworths. And I brought it home. And my mother uh, purchased a big console stereo. And there were wood cabinet stereos. But it was great. Really loud and beautiful real bassy and deep, and, um, you know, crank that Pink Floyd, the wall on that, and I always remember my mother would say, when I played this song, oh, turn that up, turn that up, I like that, I like that, and then when the guitar comes in, she'd say, turn that down, turn that down, it's too loud, (laughs) 
So it's fun to hear an old favorite song, and uh, <laughs> I hope you enjoy it. It's a beautiful version. It's on YouTube. Uh, Roger Waters' Quarantine 2020 Mother.
did it mean to be so? 